Welcome to Ask the Therapist, a podcast for everyone who's fascinated about how our minds work, mental health and all things therapy. Ask the Therapist is hosted by me, Sarah Rees, a mental health nurse, cognitive behavioural therapist and author of the CBT Journal. I've over 20 years experience of working in the field of mental health and I hope to educate, entertain and simplify all things mental health and therapy. So sit back and enjoy the episode. So I'm Sarah Rees and I'm here with Tobin Bell today. It's really exciting. Hello. It's a bit strange, isn't it, because we've known each other for absolutely a long time. A long, long time. We met in the early intervention team, didn't yeah. we? Over ten years ago. Over ten years ago. And then kind of separated out, didn't we? You did your CBT training and then I did it a lot later on. Yeah. And then I've crossed paths again. again. So this is strange, but it's gonna be really exciting. So I just wondered if you'd start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, kind of what you do and kind of your career journey so yeah. far. okay. Well, I guess when we started working together, I was a yeah. nurse and my background in nursing, mental health nursing. And the bit that I found most interesting about the nursing was the, the psychological side of it, I suppose. So I quickly yeah. moved down to the community and was lucky enough to to work in an early intervention team where psychology was really valued and it felt really exciting. It felt like a real paradigm shift in terms of treating people early, but being really interested in the people's, the psychological factors behind psychosis or keeping it going. Mm. So I think from there, that really kick-started interest in therapy and then went to different training, but the kind of core training was CBT. There was and, a big initiative with the government, yeah. wasn't there, at the time to train people up because there's just not enough psychological therapies out of that. Yeah, so it's kind of strange because it's kind of come full circle. So I trained in the place I now teach uh, Gosh, for much, of the, much yeah. of the week. And you're right, so it was part of the IAT initiative there. Yeah, so that was about a year's quite intense course and then CBT. And now I teach on that kind of course. Uh, so that's so, kind of interesting, being on the other side of things, marking lots of tapes using particular measures. And so, you know, it's lovely to watch hours and hours of therapy. And it's nice to kind of work with students when they're first starting. So, I mean, that's one of my roles currently as a kind of trainer and uh, supervisor and tutor at a centre that's tied to Manchester Uni. It's just changed names. So it's Greater Manchester Psychological Therapies Training Centre. Oh, has it? Gosh, yeah. that's a mouthful, isn't yeah, it? It's more like a training centre for evidence-based therapies now. So oh, we have yeah. um, IPT, interpersonal therapies, trained there, and right. family kind of systems interventions. So what interested you in the teaching element of it? Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know, I suppose there is quite a few overlaps in terms of therapy and, and teaching in some ways. Yes, um, yeah. You're great. creating change, you're developing skills. Mm. And I guess CBT is quite nicely allied to trying to transfer the skills over to the other person. I think, yeah. in a way, teaching is very much like that. And I think that's one of the things that kind of keeps me going in it. There's lots of questions that I have that I feel I can't, I can't answer. And when I can't answer it, I kind of go and read books fairly compulsively to try and get to the answers of things. So I have a book-buying disorder, taking <laughs> therapy books. Um, lots of therapists have yeah, that, don't they? Oh, I've got a little tad of that. So that, that curiosity yeah, so. that you around learning because yeah. you're doing a PhD at the moment as well yeah. tell us about that yeah so that's in uh, compassion focused therapy so that's probably my main interest and main therapy that I would use mm. yeah and that's down in Derby how did you get into that yeah so I think doing CBT I'm always you know still very interested in that but I think probably through my own experiences like self-criticism and shame mm. came up again and again in the clients I was working with and looking for ways to work with that kind of stumbled on compassion focused therapy 
and was lucky enough to have Mary Welford in Manchester at the time yes. and had some early training with her and if I'm like I kind of found home a little bit I think. oh wow yeah. I think probably the belief in the therapy I think comes from seeing it work yeah um, it being quite a good model of being human so not just disorder mm. but also actually finding it helping me does it really change things for you I think so I think CFT, which is compassion focused therapy, yeah. is it, you do learn that from the inside out, don't you? Whereas CBT, we don't do any psychological training ourselves, do we, to no. become a CBT therapist? I think it's un, unusual in terms of the other therapies and, mm. and not having that. I think the gap is being filled a little bit by self practice, self reflection, which I've kind of been in, involved in a bit with. So that's James Bennett Levy, a writer mm. who lives in Australia. And this idea about actually therapists having to practice what they preach a little bit. And why? Why? Yeah. What's important about that? I think it gives you quite a different way of experiencing and understanding the therapy. So, for example, we've written a book about, not to do a plug, but we've written a book about <laughs> self-practice, self-reflection and compassion-focused therapy. And people actually having a chance to do it. It's not just about talking about it and thinking about it. It's about getting it in the body and feeling it. Mm. I think when you do feel it, it, it creates to a different, things. real different experience, not it, it? And then I think working with your own blocks and you're realising how hard some of the exercises are to do, but also the benefit of doing it. I think you're a lot, a lot more emotionally engaged with the client, don't yeah. you, when you really appreciate what you're going to be putting them through. I know Definitely. when I trained in CFT, that's what I, because you have to go through it yourself, really, don't you? Yeah. All the, the chair work and stuff, and it's really, really tr- tough. You have, but you have a different respect, and you understand how powerful it is. Yeah. And that, and I think you you much it's much easier to help clients do that kind of work if you've, if done, you've done it. That. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think all the evidence suggests that it kind of helps on a couple of different levels. It helps you understand the therapy and some of the concepts, but also I think really importantly improves interpersonal skills because it helps you understand what it's like to be a client and increases empathy for clients I think and evidence mm-hmm. suggests that so I think even if it was just that alone that's so there's loads of evidence for it yeah so do you see that as how therapy is going to be changing kind of going it's going to be nice to think that but then I think there's it's kind of understandably there's lots of blocks to people doing it themselves so I think therapists are humans like mm-hmm. the clients we work with and we have the same and I think, Lots do you think that therapists are very good at being in our own, in other people's minds? Definitely. So that's where we really come, that's why we think yeah. do this job, for a little bit avoidant. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, so yeah. our skills are out there in others' heads and maybe Fixing moving everybody away else. from our own experience, yeah. So I think coming back and working with it and just how hard that is, I think it's important. Mm. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think having therapy is fantastic anyway as a, as a skill and experience for a therapist. Yeah, um, I yeah. Think this, if you don't want to do that, then, or as well as self-practice, self-reflection, I think it's a nice way of... Keeping up yeah, your skills. And yeah, and, up, and kind of keeping that reflective uh, capacity going, which I think is just... The curiosity yeah. and, yeah. yeah, so broadening out your thinking all the time. Yeah. I guess you can do things, you do things so often that it just becomes automatic, doesn't it? Yeah. And maybe loses the quality of stuff. And I think so. I think that also there's that, uh, I was reading about all these different biases that we have as human beings and that one of oh when you know, when you're doing something, you, it's very hard to get back to that place before really you learn struggle it. with CBT because the way you learn CBT you do kind of teach it in a way don't you, you yeah. go through the different elements and I, I think there's a lot of emphasis on getting the clients to make connections but I don't probably spend enough time on that because I think 
Yeah, it's just obvious you know, yeah. kind of that's really clear, but it is to me because I do it every day, but yeah. it's not to other people. I, I worry about that all the time. I, I, mean, it's just a, I think it's just a really mm. hard thing that happens as humans. We automate and get into a habit about things, and we just can't get back into that place. I think so doing something where you, or even doing like a CBT thought record, when you do it for yourself, it's hard. It's hard to label emotions. It's hard to access yes. particular thoughts and find which is the, the most tricky one. And, and then it's equally hard trying to work through it and come up with something different. Yeah. yeah. So hard and worthwhile, I think. It, yeah, it's worthwhile, but hard. You, yeah, and you recognise, like you were saying, the blocks and what might prevent people from doing it and what they're going to struggle with. And I think thought records, when I give people thought records to do, that is the one thing when they come back and they've not got it quite right. And that's my fault. That's because I'm not explaining yeah. it well at all. So it's interesting, isn't it? And I know because I've done the CBT journal when, and I've done a lot of journaling. When I do that, I just get really avoidant of it. I don't, you know, don't like doing that stuff because yeah. it's difficult, isn't it? it? Is and you're difficult. looking at your own stuff and your own difficulties that the blocks come up and you want to just shove it in a drawer and not do exactly. your homework yeah absolutely <laughs> I think that's a nice that's kind of one of the things I think is a really important learning point for me is that the blocks are the blocks are the path kind of thing for for clients but also therapists so the blocks are the things that teach you the most working with it understanding it I what are the common blocks that you find well, I suppose even just thinking about um coming to therapy so I think for clients yeah. coming to therapy and whilst a lot of it is cooperative and you're working shoulder to shoulder, in a way clients are coming into a, a role where they're being cared for. Yeah. And I think some of the blocks, some of the reasons why they might be coming to therapy, but also some of the benefits they can, can get from therapy is, is thinking about how they were cared for and their experience of care and compassion from others and how they care for themselves. So I think coming to therapy kind of opens up that kind of attachment history, really, mm. and understandably for lots of people... It's an important relationship that you have with your therapist. Yeah, yeah. and it opens old patterns, old ways mm. of being, old expectations. So I think that's just hard coming to a caring role. But rather than seeing that as something you've got to get out of the way, I think that particularly when you're doing a compassion-focused therapy, that is such an important thing to be tracking and interested in. Yeah. Like how hard people find it to have attention placed on them. Um, yes, yeah. To be vulnerable with people because they have past expectations. And I know going into therapy myself, I mean, I was so nervous. Yeah. I thought, how the hell am I even in a job? And I'm going to do it again, I think, next year. So every few years that I'll kind of have a course of therapy because I think it's so powerful to sit on that other end of the chair, isn't yeah, it? And absolutely. Really, and have that attention, that focus, people thinking about you outside of the hour as well. And yeah, absolutely. So someone holding you and your life in mind, I think, is terrifying. Yeah. Also... It's the thing that's curative, you know, having yes. been held compassionately yeah. and positively in others' mind is the thing that as human beings yeah. is the thing that... That was what us. was really powerful. It was a therapist's reaction to my story. Mm. More than me telling the story, it was like <clears> putting <throat> it out there for somebody else and getting their yeah. kind of what they think of it and how they make sense of that. And that's such a nice insight when you are yes. a therapist, isn't it? So yeah. you think, well, yes. as much as yeah. what, what we do in terms of techniques or interventions, actually it's about how I hold the other person and contain their experience and mm. uh, react to, to what they're sharing. And I wonder if as a therapist we're naturally curious, because you've talked about curiosity, I'm, which is why I'm doing this. It's another, uh, another avenue of getting information because <laughs> I'm so nosy. I wonder if it is that curiosity. I wonder if that's the kind of something yeah. that we all have. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky enough to be taught by Paul Gilbert, and he tells mm. a story about when he was training 
and his trainer said to him, you know, are you interested in, you know, if you could go in somebody's house and look through their drawers and look through their journals and yeah. you know, go through their everything about them and would you be interested? And, you know, half the people say, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. And they said, well, you're in the wrong job. You've got to have that. Nose yeah, and that's why I was dead excited when you <laughs> said that. Like, I would be an estate agent. It wasn't doing those yeah. nosy in people's lives, yeah. But I think you have to have that curiosity to, to keep you going and to be curious for other people who, who kind of shut down in their own lives. You've got to be the curiosity for yes, them, I guess. yeah. And working with people and people's minds, is an, it's an interesting job to do, yeah. isn't it? Why do you think... You've gone into that. that. I mean, I think there's probably, like with most things, lots of motivations running at the same time. So I think now, having been through therapy and been reflecting on it, it's probably, you know, I want to find answers to questions that you either pose yourself or you discover in terms Mm. of science and research. I think that comes up with clients too. You want to be able to help them. You want to be able to help them help themselves. So a caring motivation as well as a kind of an interest and meaning. I think probably the thing that probably did prompt in the past is like your own experiences, my own experiences, mm. probably gave me a kick in that direction. And I don't think it's any chance that I'm working with people who are really self-critical and, you know, quite shamed. Has I mean, that been your experience? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. So I think I think lots of therapists come in because of that. I think once you can get hold of it and become aware of it. So they come into this to fix themselves. I mean, that's probably why I've done it yeah. as well. Curiosity for myself how to manage distress it gives you an interest in other people's minds your own mind yeah and then and then you have to have a job (laughs) so so nursing we both did nursing at the time it was a bursary it was like you know yeah yeah so that's definitely kind of yeah i think like like you said with with like our own therapist history we're often taught early on to kind of shift out of our own experience and pay attention to our carers or the other people important people in our lives and it kind of gives you nice skills really and then once you get into it then it's just fascinating isn't yeah. it yeah and it's always you're always learning so do you feel like you've got a handle on your self-criticism now because you've done a lot of work <laughs> in CBT and compassion focus therapy yeah. that's kind of why Paul yeah. developed it isn't it yeah it was I think it's, it's a really interesting question I think there's that realisation at some point like I can't get rid of this stuff that mm. I'm carrying around with me it's not going anywhere it's kind of really interwoven into the fabric of me because it was so early and so severe at times, I think. But I can hold it very differently. So when things do occur, like lots of old patterns and old defences and ways of coping offer themselves, but I can hold it very differently and then do something differently about it. Do you spot it earlier? Yeah, so you spot it earlier, if you're lucky. Yeah, because <laughs> not then, always. No, but then putting things actively in place. But I think compassion does teach you to be listening to the things that hurt so therefore you can listen to what you need mm. and then it gives you that, you know, you're training all the time and the skills to be able to support yourself and others. Now I remember there's one point where I remember being struck, so you, in compassion focus therapy you train like a compassionate voice or a compassionate mind or a compassionate self and almost building that up in competition or to work with the other parts of you like the critic. But I remember one point just having a difficult day and then walking in the house and then just this weird voice just came into my oh head. Oh my gosh. And it was the, like a voice saying, almost called me by like, the name that my dad called me, like, so Tobe. And it started just to talk to me and it had a different quality of voice and it just was really settling and understanding and supportive. And, and I can remember thinking that is almost kind of magical, really. Yeah. And you only know how you were talking to yourself when you experienced oh. the alternative, I think. Um, so you'd been training that different way, the yeah. compassionate mind up, but it just came automatically in place one day. Yeah, when it was you just one day. And I remember just being, like, struck by it. Gosh. Um, 
yeah, and I think you often often have to search for it and listen to it and yeah. think what their mind would say and have to work my way through it. But other times, out of habit and practice and meditation practice, etc., it, it's fairly readily accessible, I think, as a voice I want to cultivate. I don't know about you. I, I think everybody that I see in therapy, if I ask them, are you self-critical, they say yes. Oh, yeah. Do you think we just are as a species? I know I've done loads of work on it. Yeah. That we're just self-critical and then... But what we know is it underpins so much anxiety and depression, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think almost the the volume and power of the critic is representative of the uh, the extent and level of the fear underneath it. I think so. That's you, a really nice way of putting it. Yeah, I think so. It's kind of it's the way I think about it. So actually, when my critic's really, really loud, yeah. rather than thinking, "Oh God, I must listen to it," it's kind of thinking, well, "Actually, underneath it is a really big." I'm feeling very vulnerable now, and actually the fear is very big. So I think that's the other thing. When you do catch a critic, it, it means something different now. I don't listen to the content, and so I kind of think... think about the function, yeah, what it's doing. What's underneath it's just it. Just the first thing that we're taught to kind of help people understand. It's, it is often it's trying to protect you, isn't it? It's, it's trying to serve some kind of function. It's just the same reason you don't treat other people with exactly. your critical voice. Yeah, yeah. You don't speak other, to other people in a certain way. Because you know you have the wisdom that it's not helpful, you shouldn't speak to yourself in that way. Yeah. But we often we treat ourselves completely different than we treat anybody else on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. I think even when people can hear the voices of people who are really critical to them, I think there's that idea of, you know, why does it make sense earlier on in your life that you took on that voice rather than reject it? And it is to, well, actually, I had to survive in this family or I had to survive in this culture. So um, I took it on. So you've created the compassionate narrative to your... Yeah, kind of in a critic. Yeah, why absolutely. it's there, why it's there, what it means when it shows up, and then a bit of practice over time with you know what's helpful instead. I mean, I, when I was younger, the critic, the critic was so bad. I think because the level of fear underneath it, but it used to feel like a different voice, like it was coming from outside yeah. me. That must have been terrifying. Yeah, it was, and I remember being at points where when things were really hard, we we're kind of realizing that there's nothing I could do that would please that critical part. So I couldn't do this, I couldn't be that. So it kind of that this sense of being frozen by it. Did you just collapse down? Yeah, so it de- it's defeated, really. So even though it's there to protect you, and even if you use it to motivate you, actually, um, if you really let it run wild, it, it is, it's really defeating. Mm. Um, what was the turning point for you in um, that situation? Yeah. Because that sounds really tough. It sounds like you were young as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I think getting help. I think kind of having lots of good family around. But I think, you know, there's one guy who I remember came in and just paid me real interest and supported me as a person and kind of took me out of the medical realm of things and you know, used to go drinking with him. And, and yeah, I think so it's kind of Yeah, it absolutely was. And he kind of he kind of went over and above his role. And I think I that was really important mm-hmm. to me at the time. But Someone really interested in me, mm. alongside me, understanding me. Your compassionate self. Yeah, exactly. Your compassionate think, other. Yeah, I think so. Got me Gosh. off medication, and it was that that wow. care. So I think. when you came across CFT, you must have been like, "Oh my god!" Yeah. Oh my god! It's this is what I really need, but also this is really scary. And I think that's an important thing. I think because the thing that is the most helpful is the hardest when it comes to receiving care from other people and. Giving care to self is also the thing that I definitely didn't want to do. Mm. But I had an inkling that I kind of needed to, I think. You're better at that now. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And working as a therapist and being in the minds of other people, what I get asked all the time is, how do you do your job? How do you contain or work with... I mean, we work with distress. Yeah. 
every single day, don't we? Yeah. And I suppose there's a danger that you either block out, you yeah. block it. You know, we have to stay quite sensitive to it, which hasn't, we have to look after ourselves, don't yeah, we? Yeah, absolutely. But how do you do? How do you manage it? Yeah, I think that's... So they talk about compassion fatigue, but sometimes they frame it as like empathy fatigue. So it's being to in the other person's shoes. And Matthew Reichard, the, the monk, kind of talks about when he did this exercise in an MRI scanner, I think it was to kind of map out the kind of roots of compassion. You know, actually staying in other people's mind with suffering is really hard. But it's actually when you switch on compassion and you, your feelings change, your, your feelings towards the person suffering, even if that person suffering is yourself, um, I think changes the experience. And there's that balance between opening up, listening to need, but then also being helpful. And that balance of flow between giving to others and giving to self. So I think you have to practice. Because with compassion, yeah. there's the two elements, isn't there? The definition, correct me, yeah. on the turning towards distress yeah. and then the wisdom to alleviate. It's and the then, commitment and skill building to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you need those two elements. Yeah. And as a therapist, you're going towards the distress, you're sitting with it. But I think, as you said that, then I've never thought of it like that, but that's what kind of probably contains me quite well, is that I know how to alleviate. To move to, yeah. To, so God, so yeah. you can feel useful and yeah. you focus on being useful. And it's kind of having a foot in both camps. Like you don't become technique orientated. You can stay in people's yes. distress and need. But I guess mm. it is having that balance between those things that I find helpful. I think the other thing that's kind of helpful is is the thing we talk about with clients about receiving care from others. But I guess we are as therapists required to get supervision, receive yes. care from other yeah. people. And I think, and whilst that's helpful for kind of learning skills and all sorts of things, actually it's a caring relationship again. Yes. So yeah. it's, we're back to the idea of actually receiving care, opening to care is really important. And by receiving that from a supervisor, in a way you're modelling that. Did you ever take things home with you? Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have a partner who's a therapist. (laughs) And it's hard because you you ask about each other's day and it's Yeah, because I don't. And I like going home to a partner that couldn't get less. So it shifts me out a bit. Because I could talk about this stuff a lot. Mm. Because it's so interesting and you never stop learning, do you? No. So it's good, it's good and it's tricky, so having some balance with, I mean I've started to do a lot more running <laughs> and since having a, a child, I wish running I'd done away. that earlier, running away, yeah. <laughs> running fast, listening to gangster rap seems to be, be the trick, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that leads us really nicely on to how do you manage stress? I mean I think those things mentioned, I, mean, I think I have to, I have to learn quite hard and I still find it, I find it really difficult actually relying on other people for help. So supervision I find oh, really hard. Do you? Yeah, really hard. And it's interesting because I get attracted to that as a research topic, like how to help so people in supervision. But it's, <laughs> maybe it's because it's the thing I find so hard. And I think it's kind of attachment stuff and relying on people, but thinking I could be let down. So I'd rather do it on my own. So I have to work quite hard at that. But I think it's really important. I guess body and mind stuff. So doing things for the body, doing things mm. relationally. You like your music as well, yeah, don't music. you? Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's kind of weird because I don't, I don't play music. I don't really, in lots of ways, don't understand music. They, they feel like magicians. People You've got a lot it. of CDs. Yeah, I've seen your CD yeah. collection. It's impressive. So but I think I like it. It's one area of life where you know I do think quite critically about it and interested, but I just really appreciate it. I think and it's nice to have an area of life where you, you're not picking it to bits, really. Yeah. And out of everything you've learned as a the therapist, I mean, you've maybe touched on this with working yeah. on that self-criticism, what are the things that you apply to yourself? Yeah, 
I think the one thing I do have found really helpful that CFT's provided is that bit of you can change your thinking, but actually it's changing using your whole system. So changing the whole system and motivation and mentality. So you know, if I do get stuck and do get into kind of a threat mind and start worrying or getting anxious or angry or what have you, it's often using the body first, I think, before mm. trying to just change the mind on its own. So it would be slowing the breathing down, mm. using different somatic means to help support um, getting to different mindsets, so touch, uh, posture, facial expression, all those kind of things. So it's really changing your physiology. Yeah, absolutely. And then changing the motivation to think, what, what do I really want now? What kind of part of me or version of me do I want to bring to the next few moments? And what would I do if it was somebody else caring for? Mm. Uh, to bring that compassionate motivation to the fore. And then using kind of memory and imagination to get into that mode of mind. You do a lot of imagery that. stuff, don't you? Yeah. So I think kind of imagery is really powerful, I think. Um, so I think that kind of movement from just doing the kind of cognitive verbal work alone, I don't think changes things that are stored quite implicitly in the body and emotionally. So I think using the body, using imagination, using emotion. So we emotion. see too, we're taught to try change the thoughts. So you yeah. pick up the thought, you look at the evidence for and against it yeah. and shift it. But if you're, if you're really, really angry or really, really yeah. anxious... It just doesn't touch it. It doesn't touch it in no. that moment. No. It is changing your physiology. And that's kind of why, you know, if you're going to send an angry email, wait 24 hours and it's a different email yeah. because your physiology has changed. Yeah. And you use a lot of imagery. Yeah, I think so that. to kind of change that kind of mindset, really. I think like in compassion-focused therapy and in my own life, you kind of just imagine somebody helping or a different version of yourself that you want to be. I find that imagery thing really think, tricky. Yeah. And I guess people are different with that. Yeah, do you find that, that some people can do imagery well and some people can't? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, I think I'm very visual. Um, so again, it's really tricky, like we were talking about earlier, to kind of get into the mindset of somebody else who's, who finds that really difficult. But I think the research sort of suggests that there are variations, but people are also, it's not like an undifferentiated skill. So some people are good at auditory imagery um, and not so good at visual. Uh, yeah. And also... I suppose it's more about creating like a sense or a, or a felt sense of, of something. Not it doesn't have to be photographically clear or anything like that. So that's kind of like you know when you say to people, if you imagine chewing yeah. a lemon or eating your favourite, exactly that creates the yeah. felt sense of being you yeah. know, eating your favourite meal. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. yeah. So something kind of something that acts access directly through your senses in the present. So it's not perception, but you can use all your senses to get into you know, into yeah. a different frame of mind. I think. And do you feel quite good at it now you've practised? Or is it something... Yeah. I, mean, I think that's, that's a nice thing, I think, is that this is hard. It's no. hard. And it, it's not as if you kind of get to a point where you think, right, so I've you're done constantly it. cultivating kind so. of where you want to yeah. be. I find that's where you just you don't yeah. get there. It's not about getting at the destination. No, it's, it's constantly practising. And so I suppose as your life changes, yeah. things change. Definitely, it's a process. So I suppose like the... The Dalai Lama doesn't think, right, I've reached peak compassion, I've done it now. Yeah, he can put his feet up and meditate. It's kind of like something that's, I think, is recognising just how hard the brain is to to marshal, really. It's kind of not designed for these times, etc. So So our brains, like Paul says, are very tricky. It's very tricky, yeah. Yeah, and it's accepting that and constantly working with it. And that that acceptance comes with difficulty, isn't it? So you're accepting that we're full of all sorts of bits and pieces. Good uh, from bad. evolution, good and bad, but we have to choose to cultivate some to, mm. to work with the others, not get rid of them, because you can't. And, w- and when we work with people, there's often things that we regularly 
recommend mm. for clients like videos or books yeah. or is, is, do you have kind of a stock thing that you just find yourself keep going back to because you, you still see some private yeah. clients don't you yeah I think the hardest thing is just what we've said really is how do you get this to be something you do not just pick up in the worst times yeah um, but something you kind of maybe put at the heart of you maybe oh, really fold nice, into as part yeah. of your identity I think is important for me but also it's really hard so something you, because the temptation is people want to learn a strategy when they're anxious or in the but yeah. actually they need to be thinking about something. I've done quite a lot of mindfulness, but I yeah. struggle to do that every single day. There yeah. are times when I do, January I'll be doing it again, yeah. when I'm on holiday I'll do it every day, but, but I have kind of things that are similar to mindfulness that I do every day, like dog walking, I try and clear my mind when I'm doing that, yeah. or I have like anchors that kind of keep yeah. me mindful. I'd love to get up at five every morning and might do it, God, but I'd never do it. I don't know. So it's being yeah. patient and realistic and kind with yourself. I think it is like how you do something regularly. What daily. kind of things have you found that your clients have found most uh, helpful? So what? Yeah, I suppose. I guess bits of routine or habit, but also prompts in daily life. I think really. Yeah. But also not having to start too too big, really. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe not accept not expecting at the beginning huge changes either. So. The metaphor or the analogy of kind of going to the gym and trying new exercises in a way we are trying a very different way of being we're training a different pattern in the brain mm. and mind and body and um, so actually a bit like exercise when you first start doing it, you ache all over and you ache more than when you first started so you can think why the hell am i doing this when i feel worse but i think it's that commitment over time that's tricky and that's interesting because as you say that, I'm thinking that I wonder if lots of people were thinking, can I change my mind? Can yeah. I do that? What would you say to that? Somebody who said, because with our body, we knew we can change it to an extent, yeah. can't we? What about your mind? Yeah, I think sometimes using, well, back to maybe imagination. So mm. just thinking, almost building the motivation early on. So, you know, if you could do this, um, mm. if you had practice, if you did practice this you know, every day, even just a little bit for the next year, what would that version of you be like down the line. Oh, that's really um, nice, yeah. So how would that benefit you? If you were, if you did have your compassionate mind on board and supporting you, how might you look after yourself when you hit difficulty or how would that help you face certain things that are tricky? What might be different? Mm. I think that can sometimes help people because I guess we get stuck in mindsets and it's kind of hard to envision ourselves as different. different versions of ourselves. Yeah. Um, but if you can get more clarity <coughs> on that, then you can kind of work. I think so, yeah. So the things that you recommend to clients, uh, clients you see are quite small, really, doing small things, but making a change in your life that's routine, that there's prompts to do it yeah. every day, that if you carry on doing it, then you're going to have a really good outcome eventually. Yeah, and the, the evidence suggests that in terms of, so there's a wonderful Portuguese group of researchers in terms of compassion, and they found that, that was one of the kind of key bits. It's not so much like formally sitting down, although that helps, mm. and doing meditations and exercises. It's more of how do you really embody it in day-to-day life? Mm. How do you get it on board when you're out and about doing stuff? Um, so I think the more that you can take it out and make it real and yeah, useful. very practical, isn't it? We tend to learn better if we're more practical. Yeah. I think it fits the idea of compassion, not just being this bit where you have to take yourself off and sit on a cushion away from life. It's actually how you... You might do that first with a therapist or on your own, but then actually it's how you then take it back into the real world and attend to, to the things you need to attend to there. Yeah, that's really interesting. And if somebody is considering therapy, what would you advise them? 
Because yeah. I think I'm, I just think it's such a great thing to do, don't yeah, you? I think so. I think everybody should do it. Yeah. I think it's just so useful, especially in this day and age, because we've got so much more understanding of our mental health and our brains, and there's so many, you know, useful things. We know how useful it is to just talk and vent and yeah. be reflective, like you were saying, how useful it is for therapists to reflect. It's just useful, isn't it, to share our stories, to not contain them. I've been reading quite a bit about that, that if we contain our stories we don't share, then it causes quite a lot of stress, doesn't it? I think that bit, you know, that that maybe the metaphor of like kind of training in a new skill, but actually when you do training a new skill or you do like a new exercise, you initially feel so much less skilled and you feel incompetent or you ache in place you didn't know you could ache in. Yeah. So I think kind of expecting it to be difficult, difficult and that's yeah, um, not easy, yeah. part of the process. But also expect to be entering a caring relationship, or you know, mm. at least it should be, and and that's difficult too. So, you know, not to worry if it if it feels difficult interpersonally, but to be sharing that because I think therapists um, oh, it's really valuable for them, and yeah. it's really important to get feedback. But it's the kind of it's really rich sources of information how you're feeling in the session. Mm. Um, so maybe you don't feel like you have to hide that difficulty mm. with the person or with the therapy. That's part of the process about how how you work with stuck bits and how yeah. you work with distress interpersonally. And you mentioned before that you've had therapy. How did yeah. you find it when you started? Yeah, I found it really difficult at first. Yeah, but really, but just really worthwhile. I think it was talking about, thinking about the process of therapy itself, what it's like to rely on other people, share things with other people, value myself enough to go and speak to somebody and um, have somebody focus on you and, and stuff was really... I guess it's almost like a behaviour experiment in itself. You're experimenting and yeah. testing out some of your your fears and expectations just Making by being in it. Very vulnerable yeah, as exactly. well, which is is healthy, isn't it? And yeah, good, but diff- not but easy. Difficult. But it's through that vulnerability that you change, you get a new insight. And yeah, definitely. My final question is just kind of a completely different question, okay. and I suppose it kind of highlights kind of how we change as people and what we learn. And if you could go back to your fifteen-year-old self, what, 15, God. what would you want your younger self to know? Yeah, what would you say to your yeah. younger self? Probably Sorry. quite a lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was the kind of time where it started to get really hard. Actually, was it fifteen? Um, Had you looked just after school? Did yeah, you have school. Yeah, kind of in the last sort of year of secondary school really yeah I think probably get help earlier I think and I can help earlier you were more quite resistant yeah. to that yeah, yeah so. and it's tricky because you say that with these days so many people struggling to get help yeah I mean, access help properly waiting lists are so long was, was that the case do you have to wait I don't think so because <laughs> it hit a crisis quite quick I think so right I guess when it gets to emergency care it happens quicker yeah I guess it would be all the things we've talked about today about compassion and the things and that you've naturally actually come to kind of yeah learn about it's the things that you actually needed yeah yeah, so yeah kind I of, think so yeah I mean I think whole life's almost an answer to that question is you know interesting compassion and mindfulness and therapy and other people I think is it's all an answer to that question mm. yeah I, I don't think I've got an easy thing really maybe it's something we think about yeah, yeah. No, that's Well, thank you very much for today. That's been absolutely fascinating.